0: Learn more at HereYouAreAZ.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am, as always, your host, Kim. The story I discovered during my research happened only about a block from my house back in 1986, and the more I researched this case, the more my blood started to boil, and I think yours will too. An all too familiar tale of revenge and how lawyers just do lawyer stuff. This is the murders of Pavel and Gabriella Dolas. In the summer of 1986, Pavel, called Paul by most of his friends, was 12 years old and his sister Gabriella, known as Gabby, was 10. Although their parents, Mum, Labuz, and Dad, Alois, had immigrated from Czechoslovakia about 13 years before, Paul and Gabby were living and enjoying a very Canadian lifestyle. Pavel, enjoying episodes of Magnum P.I., dreamt of one day joining the RCMP, and Gabby preferring the life and times of strawberry shortcake and all things pink, including her pink-framed glasses. Both were active, Gabby was in gymnastics, and Paul was in hockey, and they also both played piano. Life had also gotten better for the siblings recently when their mum, Laboose, who preferred in Canada to go by Libby, had taken enough of Alois's bullshit and batterings and left him, moving into a small starter home in Woodbine in Calgary's southwest, having taken enough abuse on herself. On Easter Sunday that year, Alois had almost drowned Paul at a swimming pool they were visiting in Banff and had twisted his arm. In that instance, Pavel had run to an RCMP officer, telling him that he feared his dad was going to abduct him which was actually something Alouis had threatened on at least six occasions before should Libby decide to leave him. Once Libby realized Alouis had turned his rage against her children, she had taken her and the kids to the Sheriff King home, which was a woman's shelter here, and sought a restraining order against Alouis. Libby had a good job and was able to secure a home for herself free from Alouis's abuse. She worked as a registered massage therapist for Olympic athletes. A Lewis, on the other hand, remained in and out of work as a carpenter. But as is the case then, and still is today, a restraining order may keep a batterer away from you, but it has nothing to do with visitation of your children, because courts prefer to keep families as intact as possible, regardless of what watching your mother get abused does to a child's psyche. And because of the threats a Lewis had made about abducting the children, Libby kept them very vigilant, teaching them where to go and who they should call should the situation ever arise. She had no legal recourse for keeping Paul and Abby Gabby from their father, even though they were old enough to know that they didn't enjoy his company. So she had to allow visitations to continue, even though each time she feared they would not be returned. So on the morning of July 27th, 1986, Paul watched the miserable rain patter against their living room window, dreading his dad's arrival to take them fishing. Alois had insisted on a fishing trip despite the weather, and Paul thought this was stupid, since they didn't even have fishing rods, but he knew that protesting wasn't going to get him anywhere, and would only anger his father and he would turn his wrath on him paul never enjoyed the visits with his dad they did very little together and lewis was always sullen preferring to watch crime shows on tv mocking the bad guys for being stupid enough to get caught he saw lewis's dodge truck pull up to the house at 8 a.m and paul's tummy did a little drop his mum opened the door a smidge and lewis asked if they were ready paul had dressed for the weather in jeans and a purple hoodie covered with his winter coat and hiking boots Paul panicked when Alois told her to get their swimsuits because he was taking them swimming at the hot springs in Kananaskis, reminding him of their last swimming excursion. Paul and his mom exchanged anxious glances as he went up the stairs to get his swimsuit, but neither of them would make a fuss. Libby packed Gabby's suit by rolling it in a towel and sent them out the door, giving them each a hug and a kiss and telling them she loved them, and she asked Alois, "'You'll have them back by four, right?' to which he responded, by four. As they walked away, alois turned and said in his heavy accent, when I come back, I'll have another surprise for you. But Alois never returned that afternoon and neither did Paul and Gabby. That evening, Libby called the police to report the children missing and a, a patrol car did come out. Still in dispute today, Libby says that they were reluctant to search or do much because the children were with their other parent regardless of Libby's fears. The police in their official statement said that, the, that police cruisers were sent twice that night and were not alarmed because Libby had said that he had done this before, being late with the kids, and that she had complicated the matter, allowing a Lewis to see the children despite a restraining order in effect, which is utter bullshit, seeing that a restraining order does not mean you have any legal rights to not allow visitation. Libby denies ever telling the police that he had done this before. Regardless, nothing was done until four days after they had not been returned when Libby's lawyer sent a letter to the police urging that they investigate the matter. So it actually wasn't until august third when a kidnapping warrant was put on a Louis Dolis described as six foot one, one hundred and ninety pounds, dark hair, a stocky build with a mustache driving a rusty silver and black nineteen seventy seven Dodge Ram charger with plate number FGH-083. Four agonizing days later, on a very rainy August 7th, a Lewis's Dodge was spotted stuck in some mud and abandoned along the Sylvester Trail in McLean Creek, southwest of Bragg Creek. In the truck, police made the ominous discovery of two children's bathing suits still wet, a knife, a sledgehammer, and a hatchet, as well as a chainsaw and some spoiled food. What appeared to be blood was smeared on a cardboard sheath used for a ruler, a map, and some paper towels. The keys to the truck were found tossed a few meters away in the brush. An immediate search for Paul and Gabby and Lewis was launched with Constable Barry Harnung saying, quote, "We are looking for bodies, but we're still hoping they'll be alive end quote. later that same day r c m p Constable Frank Dehir was working out of the Cochrane detachment and was on patrol along Highway 22 on his way to a call when he spotted a rain-drenched, disheveled-looking man walking across the Glen Gardner Bridge. He was trudging along with his head tucked into the collar of his jacket, and Frank described him as looking like a drowned rat. Frank slowed and rolled his window down and asked him if he needed some help. With a heavy accent, the man told him that his truck had gotten stuck in McLean Creek area and he needed a tow truck. He said his name was Alois Dola's, But between his accent and the fact that his name looks very different on paper than it's pronounced, he didn't really make any connection at first to the warrant and the discovery of the truck hours before that had gone over the radio. So Frank ordered him a tow truck and asked him if he was going to wait there for it, and he nodded, so Frank left him driving off. But something bothered him about this guy, so he put his name into the CPIS, or Canadian Police Information System. About a kilometer and a half down the road, getting the results of his query back, Frank slammed on the brakes and headed back to the drowned rat Alois doulas wanted for kidnapping. Meanwhile, searchers were still looking in the area for Paul and Gabby in mosquito-infested woods and along roads that were turned to mud with the rains. The search was called off that night as, as the rains got to be too much, but the search was expanded and continued for days following the discovery of Alois and his abandoned truck. A Lewis was brought into Cochrane to be questioned by homicide detectives Wally Purcell and Nick Kiska. Wally, a bit of an expert at getting perps to talk, pulled out from his wallet school pictures of his own six-year-old daughter Lisa and ten-year-old son Scott and laid them on the table in front of Alouis. Lewis, a Lewis fiddled, fiddled with the pictures, but he wouldn't really look at them. Wally told him that Gabby was cold and he was worried for her with bears and cougars in the area. When asked where his kids were, Alois didn't reply, so Wally showed him the pictures again and said, These are my kids. I miss them right now because I'm working tonight and I can't be with them. Are you going to miss your children? Alois replied, I already screwed up my life. Try always to be best, never works. I left the country, the family, go to freedom. Better life, better everything, come with high, high, high hopes. Didn't work. A Lewis then picked up the pictures again and examined them more closely before exclaiming to Wally, Mine are better. A Lewis then refused to speak any anymore without a lawyer. Enter defense attorney John Bascom. Bascom faced a lot of controversy over this case and his defense of a Lewis, whom he counseled repeatedly not to reveal the whereabouts of Paul and Gabby, prolonging the investigation and Libby's grief and anguish but it was concluded that he was just doing his job as a defense attorney and was not obliged to help the police in their investigation. But it left a very bad taste in the public's opinion of defense lawyers everywhere. In 1988, Libby told Lisa Church of the Calgary Herald, quote, this is old news to me, end quote. She said she had long known that John had told Alois not to reveal what he had done to her children. Quote, what happens to him now is his own business. I don't care if the bastard is dead, end quote. After his discussion with his lawyer, John, a Lewis was taken to his cell where awaited his cellmate or undercover officer, John Wells, who told him that he was in for drunk driving. He asked a Lewis, what are you in for? And a Lewis said, don't ask. Whatever you did is nothing compared to me before rolling over in his bunk and going to sleep. The next morning, he was escorted to court by RCMP guards to have the charges against him read. Libby was in attendance and buried her face in her hands, weeping as the charges were read, and hopes of finding her children alive were all but dashed. The RCMP felt they had enough evidence of murder without the bodies of Paul and Gabby, but felt that the search should continue. Calgary police divers dragged ponds near McLean Creek, and park rangers and RCMP combed the marshes and bush with dogs and helicopters. They brought in horses to get through the muddy terrain. By the 13th of August, 10 days into the search, Constable Paul Arras said, quote, As far as I'm concerned, we have to keep going. I'm prepared at this point to continue on for several more days, and I think everyone else is prepared to do so as well. The search continued in the end for six weeks. Two days later, on August 15th, Alus was moved from the Cochrane RCMP detachment to the jail in the Calgary Remand Centre on his lawyer's request, saying that he was being mistreated by the RCMP. Quote, he's not under the beck and call of the RCMP investigators, and he indicated that shortly after his first appearance, they started interrogating him quite heavily. It comes down to a question of when the questioning becomes a form of torture, end quote. Yes, because leaving the mother of your children to not know if children are alive or dead or where they are isn't torture. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider
0: through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope,
1: By September 24th, and after six weeks in custody and the start of his preliminary inquiry, Alois still had not said a word about where the bodies of his children Paul and Gabby were. After a two-week preliminary hearing, Lewis was ordered to stand trial for the murders of his children. And without the bodies of his children, but on the strength of the evidence and eyewitnesses that saw him in the area both with and without his children— in May 1987, Alois was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder. Just as Alan Saladiki said of Alois, in short, the accused is a cool, calculating, cold-blooded murderer who is apparently fully pleased and content with his acts he has carried out, acts that are beyond the comprehension of any proper parent. He concluded that there were a number of aggravating factors, in particular that these were his own biological children and could not find one mitigating factor in any of what he had done. The judge further stated, quote, "...the accused previously threatened to either take away the children from his wife or implied to do harm to at least one of them. The children were with him for no other reason than their compassion for him." His abhorrent conduct towards them resulting in their death was nothing less than vengeance which he wished to visit on his wife. The concealment of the bodies of his children which took place before he retained counsel is also an aggravating factor. He is, in my view, a person unable to show any remorse as he demonstrated from the moment of his apprehension and has continued until now, and has continued until now. Stand up, Mr. Dolas, you are sentenced to life imprisonment and you will not be eligible for parole until you have served 25 years, which was the maximum under the law. Libby said, quote, 25 years, 25 years before I'll ever have to think about him again, and perhaps he won't make it, end quote. Now, sadly, under the faint hope clause, he would actually be able to apply for parole as early as 2001, which was only 15 years um, but we'll get to that because there is a little bit more to this story. Lewis was transferred to the Maximum Security Saskatchewan Penitentiary in Prince Albert and put into the general population. The general population isn't big fans of child murderers, especially those that kill their own children and show no remorse for it. So he was quickly beaten up and then he demanded to be moved into protective custody. But why should they do that for him? So in his last act of manipulation, Lewis again used his children as bargaining chips and finally revealed where they could be found in exchange for his protective custody. Police have actually not revealed where the bodies were found, citing that it's confidential, and actually even Livy wasn't told where they were found. An autopsy revealed that they had both died of multiple stab wounds. Libby, who was actually going by Libba Cunnings in 2004, has worked tirelessly to help victims like herself. And in 1996, she contacted Darlene Boyd, whose daughter Lori had been killed by two men who were also eligible for parole under the Faint Hope Clause, saying, quote, There is strength in numbers, and hopefully when we get together, more families will join us in support. Darlene was fighting to repeal the Faint Hope Law. In 1998, Libby was taken right back to her own grief of July of 1986 when Ian Gordon was charged with the axe murders of his children, Kayla and Laney. Now, side note here, I did do that story back in season one. It's called The Bonaventure Axe Murders. She says it's still difficult to put into words her feelings, but she's getting a little sick of these crimes happening again and again. Lewis did not apply for parole in 2001 or any year, likely because Libby had worked on a book by Christy McLennan in 2001 called No Remorse, A Father's Murderous Rage, which wasn't going to bode well for his release. On December 15, 2005, Lewis died while still in custody at the Kingston General Hospital at 61 from what was called natural causes. However, a coroner's inquest was held in September of 2006 into his death, Nothing scandalous came of it, but a now 57-year-old Libby told Sherry Zickfust of the Calgary Herald, quote, I would dare to say that the w- whole city of Calgary breathed a sigh of relief at this news as well. Many people remember my case vividly, and I don't think there was a single person who wished for Dolus walking the streets of Calgary as a free man. It is not possible to undo 19 years of suffering and stress with one short phone call. Now, the year before, she had actually told Sherry, quote, the closure will be when I die or when he dies, whichever comes first. So his death in 2005 answered that question for her. In December of 2009, when James Bing June Louie was charged with killing his two children and injuring their mom, Ying, in the neighborhood of Panorama, Libba came forward and offered these amazing words to Tony Seskus, who's a journalist here in Calgary. At first, you kind of feel nothing, and then slowly some of the emotions come back. Don't be afraid of the emotions. We do have this sort of inner wisdom and trust the inner wisdom. Trust what you feel, and what you feel is right. I'm still dealing with it. We shouldn't be able to imagine that because it's not natural. None of us can imagine that. I wish I had a magic formula. Some people sort of go into denial at first, and some people want to know the facts. I'm more of the person who wants to know the facts. So what I did, what worked for me was trying to educate myself as much as I possibly could about what would drive a person to do something like that. But that's a process for like three or four years. That's not something you're going to understand in six months or so. It's a long process. Friends were absolutely crucial. They were really critical to my survival. A lot of my friends were basically afraid to say, hi, how are you? Because they didn't want to ask the question, how are you? End quote. Now, here is where I go off on a little bit of a side note here and get myself into trouble for stating this, but this is just my own experience, my own opinion. I'm sure that all the legal stuff that you'll read on the internet or anything that your divorce lawyer is going to tell you is that a restraining order will protect you and your children. Um, that super that visitation becomes supervised when there's a restraining order in place and everything is good. But here's what I know from what I personally have experienced. You cannot legally withhold visitation from your child's other parent when you have an interim or regular custody visitation order in place. It doesn't matter if your child is sick, if they're scared, if you're scared. Once I got a restraining order, the issue of the kids wasn't even brought up. So in my case, it was actually my lawyer that had requested a restraining order for herself against the person. And I just got one because the judge and a judge that I credit for saving my life threw one in for me as, you know, as well under the circumstances. Nothing was said about changes to visitation being supervised. There was nothing like that said at all. So I still had to provide access to the kids. Now, it didn't have to be at my house anymore, but now I'm forced to go. At at that time, I was forced to go to an empty church parking lot, uh, which was a place that he picked, on Wednesday nights and still give the kids over because at that time they're too little to walk like a two football field distance or the required 200 yards away on their own. So I used to get something that's called a domestic standby where an officer would attend the exchange and just make sure he didn't shoot me or anything. It it didn't stop him from throwing insults, but that wasn't part of the deal. So the officer would just keep his post until the kids were like safely out of my car and into his or vice versa, whatever the case was. So if you are ever in the situation where you get a restraining order and the, you have young kids with a custody agreement, Make an application too sweet to get supervised visitation so you're not accused of breaking the restraining order yourself because of the fact that you have to provide visitation. And at the very least, try as hard as you can to make the exchanges in public, in a well-lit place, and ask a friend or a family member to do the exchange for you. But there's really nothing you can do to keep your children Safe while they're in the other person's care, and that is the scariest thing ever. I hope that they make some ch- serious changes to the laws, especially when there's d- domestic violence in in a situation. Because right now, yes, they they do what they can to protect you, um, but they don't consider the children necessarily in those situations because they figure, well, you know, just because he's abusing you, he's not abusing the children. But they don't take into consideration the fact that. Being abusive to the to your other parent is abusive to the children. Again, it's just my little side note there. It's my opinion, my own personal experience. A lawyer, a police officer might tell you something different, but that is my experience with it. From what I do, you know, from what I have had to experience, and that was the brutal and awful murders of Pavel and Gabriella Dolis. I can't help but putting myself in the place of Pavel. I mean, that dread that he was feeling of not wanting to go and being scared. It's so frustrating that in custody cases like this, there is little to no recourse to not put your children in this kind of risk. Each visit is a risk. It's really terrifying as a parent to basically send your children out the door um, to their possible murders. Anyways, on that terrible note, I'm going to be back again next week with another case that will likely get your blood boiling. Don't forget to do your rate, review, subscribe stuff, and the exclusive content, all that blah, 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 blah. Links are in the show notes. And as always, thank you so much for listening.